But lately, it seems like we've been hearing about dystopias a lot. Welcome to dystopia. Which dystopia are we living in anyway? It seems culturally we're obsessed with dystopia. I, I hear a lot of people saying, oh my goodness, we're living in a dystopia right now. <laughs> dystopia is already upon us, it would appear. The dystopia is easy to imagine, but there's nothing set in stone. We can completely choose a different path. It's possible, and we should do that. I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. Welcome to the first episode of the Anti-Dystopians. On this podcast, we're going to be talking about the political ramifications of new technologies. So to use the Silicon Valley terms, we're going to be a little less techie and a little more fuzzy. We also hope to extend the conversation about tech beyond just the perspective of the white male tech worker in the Bay Area. So if you have ideas, readings, or topics that you think we should dive into, please tweet or comment at us. We hope that this podcast can be one contribution to a wider conversation about how to avoid descending into dystopia. For our first episode, Kira Jasper and I sat down to discuss some of the developments and anti-monopoly approaches to tackling big tech in the United States. October turned out to be a very significant month for big tech in the United States. First, the House Judiciary Committee released a report on Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google that found that these companies had monopoly power. Then, about two weeks later, the Department of Justice launched an anti-monopoly suit against Google. I should also say that Kira and I found out while recording this episode that Joe Biden had been declared the winner of the U.S. presidential election. So, if we sound much more upbeat about halfway through the episode, you'll know why. So hi, everybody. I'm Alina Utrada. And I'm Kira Jasper. And for our very first episode of the Anti-Dystopians, we're going to be talking about uh, the politics of monopolies and the pros and cons of a antitrust approach to taking on the quote-unquote big tech companies. So first, we should start by saying that we're going to be focusing on American anti-monopoly developments. We know that the EU has done a ton of stuff with antitrust in regards to big tech. And it's so, in fact, it's so good that we're going to have an entire episode dedicated just to the EU. So, So that's why we're focusing on the U.S. for this podcast. And in particular, because in October, we had two big anti-monopoly developments in the U.S. First was the U.S. House Judiciary Report on on the big four, Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook, that found that those companies were monopolies. And then we had the DOJ suit against Google at the end of the month. And it is also coming on the recent US presidential election, which as we record is still happening. (laughs) 
and will probably happen for another week. So <laughs> just a lot. It has been endless, but but it does look like Joe Biden is ahead. And if that is the case, one of his economic advisors and probably economic cabinet positions will go to Elizabeth Warren, who in her campaign for president specifically campaigned uh, on a pledge to break up big tech. So some very interesting developments, don't you think, Kira? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot here for us to dig into. So I guess just to start off, we should maybe provide the audience with a bit of context as to what these two huge developments in the U.S. Congress were over the past month. So starting off with the House Judiciary Report, Alina read all 449 pages of the report. (laughs) I don't know how that's possible, but I guess to start off, can you provide a bit of context, uh, context as to what the report said, why it was filed in the first place, and what the biggest takeaways were regarding both the economic briefly, but specifically the political ramifications of the monopolization of these tech companies. Yeah. So the report was very long, but it was very good. And I was very excited about it. So a couple of things to note. So basically this was, I think it was 18 months of an investigation by the House Judiciary Committee. And in particular, it was spearheaded by four really amazing staff members of Congressman David Cicilline, one of whom it was Lena Kahn, who is this, I don't know if for anybody who's seen her a few years ago, she was this very young lawyer who basically upended the world of anti-monopoly law with her article about how Amazon is a monopoly. It's called the Amazon Antitrust, the Amazon Antitrust Paradox, I think it is. And we'll link that if anybody wants to read it. But anyway, so she's incredible and amazing. And so she was one of the staff members that basically had this big report investigating these these big tech companies. And the report basically found that these four companies were monopolies and exerted monopoly power. And the reason it's so long is because they have just an incredible amount of information that they synthesized on the practices of these companies. So you can read the executive summary if you want to kind of get just an overview of what happened. And then the, the really long parts are the nitty gritty details of what these, these companies are doing. So for listeners that maybe are unfamiliar with what the report found and what antitrust really is. I know that we're going to be focusing more on the political aspect, but do you have a few thoughts on what the economic harms are before we jump in more to the political? Yeah. So one of the reasons Lena Khan's article was so kind of revolutionary is because for many years in the U.S., antitrust has been dominated by the this theory spearheaded by a lawyer called Bork which basically found, he basically argued that you should, anti-monopoly law should be based on this idea of consumer harm, which can be found basically with just higher prices. So the idea being, if monopolies charge higher prices, they're bad. And Lena Khan, so that's how Amazon kind of got out of being a monopoly for a really long time, because they're like, look, yeah, we're really big. And sure, you could argue we have a lot of market power, but we're driving prices down. Lena Khan's article basically argued Amazon is is still a monopoly and still is causing harm, even though they're driving down prices. And so the report, this, this most recent House Judiciary report shows that, I mean, it was really interesting. 
it documents there's quote unquote a prevalence of fear among third-party sellers who use Amazon's platform to like sell their own goods. At one point in the report, let me find the quote, that literally says like sellers for sellers, Amazon functions as a quasi state and many sellers are more worried about a case being opened on Amazon than an actual court. So it's really crazy. Yeah, really remarkable how much market power Amazon has because it is it is the e-commerce platform. You cannot really uh, sell as a third-party seller. You can't really sell anywhere else. You have to do business with Amazon, um, and Amazon uh, does a lot of has a lot of policies to to sort of just increase its power so one of the things it does is it encourages these third-party sellers to house and store their goods in amazon warehouses and then amazon will take care of shipping for them which on the one hand you're like oh that's so nice and great but actually it just increases their power so if you do something that amazon doesn't like or you're competing with amazon's products they could make your shipping 10 days long and have Amazon created products one day. So, or they can change your ranking in Amazon's listing when you search on Amazon. In one case, in fact, one third party seller had his goods in an Amazon warehouse and then he wanted to switch them, I think, or, or just get off the site entirely. And he requested that Amazon release them and Amazon refused. And there was really nothing that he could do. So, so, so Amazon operates a lot of power. The other thing that Amazon does, which is report documented is that it, because it has so much information on these products and Amazon uses its leverage, basically it requires in order to be a certified seller to sell on the site, it requires these third-party sellers release a lot of information about their products to Amazon. And then Amazon can see with its, the information and data it gets from search and selling on the site, it can see what products are doing really good and it basically just clones them. So a lot of sellers have said they have a really amazing product, it's doing really well, and then all of a sudden Amazon Basics or, you know, Amazon will come up with a similar product and all of a sudden they'll realize like their products go down in the search rankings or they're removed from the site entirely and they don't know why. So it's not a transparent like judicial system. So, so, so that's basically the, the, the argument that the report made about Amazon in particular. There's sort of like a similar dynamic. I mean, it goes into a lot of ways in which these companies have different types of monopoly power, but it makes a similar argument about the Apple App Store in terms of like Apple can demand a 30% cut on apps. It can keep certain apps off that they don't like. So, so similar argument, same with Google and Google Play. We can talk a little bit more about how the DOJ is making an argument about Google, but so so this is this is, this is kind of the argument that they're they're making, which is not based on consumer prices, but is still definitely causing harm. Yeah, that's wild. And something I want to note: so Alina actually is releasing a blog post that really details the conversation we're going to have today. And something fascinating from her post that I that I yeah thought was really interesting is that Amazon forces sellers to give up their rights to make a complaint in court as a condition for using its platform. So they basically have to surrender their ability to bring a lawsuit against Amazon if they realize, as Alina just explained, that Amazon creates a product and competes against another seller that whose product is doing really well in order to drive out competition. But they have no legal basis to clarify what that looks like. And if they try to go through Amazon's internal 
quote unquote legal system, whatever that even looks like, which is not, not, I mean, which I think brings this bigger question of what is Amazon really? Yeah, it's like such a fascinating question. I think the Amazon example in particular is because it's sort of creating, it's using its monopoly power to create like almost a judicial system. Like it's a market place, but it's, it was also really interesting to read about the last ditch effort that sellers would make would be to write a, like an email to Jeff Bezos. It's called like lighting, writing a letter to Jeff basically, which is like this like Hail Mary attempt to get some sort of a resolution. But yeah, and I think it's other, other scholars and commentators have written about this. So Frank Pasquale and Rory Van Lu wrote about how technology is sort of enabling this type of almost like private governance structure. So, so Frank Pascale made an argument about, so Airbnb, for instance, has so much data on like housing that you could see a replacement of like city, city councils or, or different types of like government public regulation in, in, fav- in, in lieu of just like a data-driven private corporation. But of course they don't have the same, like you don't have a right to a fair trial at Amazon. You don't have, you know, different things like this. Same with quite interesting Rory Van Loo's paper about marketplaces. The market for dispute resolution talks about like credit card companies. And one of the big things that credit card companies does is they like deal with disputes and resolution. So it's just interesting. I think uh, the same thing is kind of similar, but Amazon is, I think, the most obvious case of like where like they're becoming sort of a, they are becoming market makers, but also like almost like quasi-judicial systems where you don't really have rights. Exactly. And I, I think that relates very well with the point Mark Zuckerberg tries to, tried to raise during the hearing at, during the House um, on this report in the aftermath of this report, in which he argues that corporations are really important because they can help to limit the power of state actors like China from really entering the market. And it's really hard to make a case that that other state actors could potentially, such as China, Mm -hmm. could dominate the market. And because they don't have these same US values like democracy, competition, inclusion, and free expression, this is a reason why having these big companies sort of regulate the market is, is a positive thing. But in my opinion, and we don't have to delve too deep into this, but the rule of law is an essential part of having a healthy functioning democracy. If you do not have an, an ability to have some form of accountability, then you cannot argue that the system is democratic, in my opinion. And this, yeah. the health of that rule of law is really important. And so when you have these huge companies that, and there's many reasons why we cannot, maybe it's even improper to call these companies democratic because that would imply that they are a state. But to, to sort of argue that these systems have free values if there's no way to keep them accountable. And when you have this really this tension between DC and Silicon Valley, I think that's really illustrative of this lack of accountability for not only the state regulating what these companies do, but then also people playing within that system in raising concerns, in keeping the organization accountable to its principles and to the agreements that it signs. And I think that's really problematic. No, I think that's such a good point. And like, it relates back to like, kind of two approaches you could take to like remedies for these monopolies. So on the one hand, and this relates back to, I mean, what, what, what you think is like the political harms of monopolies. So there's an argument to be said that, okay, Amazon is really big. That's great that it's big. 
you know, that's not the problem. The problem is that it's unaccountable. So let's quote unquote democratize Amazon. Let's, you know, whether it's the state or like from below, like people pushing at it, let's make Amazon have better rules, like in its marketplace to make it fair and transparent. And yeah, maybe Amazon has a lot of they've consolidated power, but like, at least it's a fair playing field, right? Like at least it's a fair process and there's some benefit to like having consolidated power. The other argument on that would be to say, no, consolidation is bad because it can like, because Amazon has so much power. It doesn't matter if Amazon is a benevolent king or not. The problem is that Amazon is a king. So let's break up e-commerce marketplaces so that like, sellers or consumers have better bargaining power so that they can go to different places. And this is, I think, sort of like a parallel argument to political power, which is to say you can either consolidate power and then try to democratize that or put checks on it, or you can break up power to make it less efficient. And that was sort of like the idea of breaking up the three branches of the U.S. government. Like the U.S. government is intentionally meant to be inefficient because efficiency breeds power. So I think it's like such a valid point. It's something that I think when we talk about remedies for these monopolies and what we want to do to think about like the theory of, of, of power and how, how we want to control that. Yeah, I want to take one step back before we go further and sort of interrogate the assumption that I think we're both operating on, which is that these companies sort of act like a state. And, and I wanted to <laughs> see if you can dig deeper into why why you think that's true because obviously these companies don't think that in fact during the the committee hearing they were trying to argue the opposite despite the operating assumption that i think a lot of the lawmakers were were operating in so can you sort of explain why you think that these companies are kind of acting like a state or what qualities of the company are state like that are concerning especially as they're trying to operate within a state <laughs> and in <laughs> a nationalist world not nationalist world what is this like a the westphalian state system yeah the westphalian state system yeah no it's interesting i mean i found that line in the house judiciary report really interesting i think you kind of see tossed around in commentary about these companies like comparison to the to the state so like fox had an article that was like Facebook is a nation state and Mark Zuckerberg is the king, you, you know, and sometimes, sometimes they mean actually like the power of, of the corporations themselves. So for example, Facebook's attempt, well, Facebook and co to create a current, like a cryptocurrency with Libra, just very much a way like a state operates power. And sometimes they mean corporate governance. So like Facebook as a corporation is sort of organized like a like an absolute monarchy in which like Mark Zuckerberg has a majority of voting shares. He's not really accountable to a board of directors. Like he has complete control. And that's an interesting question when we talk about remedies too, which is I think one of the reasons Mark Zuckerberg was so, or I should say Facebook was so resilient to the ad boycott this summer around hate speech on Facebook is because Mark Zuckerberg has basically absolute, like he is an absolute sovereign of Facebook. And so, so there's an argument there to be made that one of the things you can do is reform, reform the companies themselves. But yeah, but I thought it, but I thought it was a really telling line in the house report 
and it was very I mean I don't even think like it was it was only because I was going through it like very nitpicky it wasn't like front and center but it was a very telling line that they said it was operating like a quasi-state in terms of and, and it was talking specifically about this sort of like quasi-judicial capacity and I thought that was that was really interesting I don't I don't know how widespread that like idea is but it is certainly like an interesting and we can go into sort of like the ways that the house judiciary report explicitly talks about how these monopoly monopolies operate power but it is this sort of like interesting question about the interaction between these big tech companies corporations and like state power and that's been something that like through the history of anti-monopolies has been has been like a question which is like how how does it does it threaten the power of the state and, and the public? Yeah, I guess digging now into that, into more of the report and what are the political dimension or political ramifications of these big tech companies are, are there a few other elements of the report that really stuck out to you? Yeah, so, so a couple of things. So like, they say specifically there's a political element to these anti-democracies. So like the exact quote is our economy and democracy are at stake. So there was like an explicit recognition in the report that this is not just about like efficiency or, you know, competitiveness for the sake of competitiveness. There's a political element. So there's a couple of arguments the report says in particular that I thought were quite interesting. So the first is they talked about the effect that the digital platforms have on journalism, which I thought was really interesting. They basically argued that like these, like probably Facebook in particular, but like these technologies destroyed local news. And that means that there is that this, you know, the fourth estate ability to hold local governments accountable has disappeared. The second, the second sort of argument, which we sort of talked about is that that these companies like exert a type of like economic tyranny over individuals. So this is this is the the most famous quote, which is from the 1819 congressional debate about the Sherman Antitrust Act. So U.S. Senator Sherman said, "If we would not endure a king as a political power, we should not endure a king over the production, transportation, and sale of any of the necessaries of life." we would not submit to an emperor, we should not submit to an autocrat of trade. This is kind of the argument we were talking about, which is like Amazon, for instance, operates a sort of like tyrannical economic power over sellers and that like power over individuals, again, whether it's benevolent king or not, is bad. This is infringing on freedom. And the, the third, so the thing, and then the thing that I thought was really fascinating was that they explicitly, the report explicitly says that big techs, the monopolies, political lobbying and donations are a threat. So this sort of feeds back into this question of corporations as people and donations as free speech and super PACs. So they're basically saying these companies are so wealthy that they they are subverting the democratic process with their donations to p- political lobbying and their ability to fund think tanks and, and, and control the conversation around tech. It was very interesting. We can link it to, there's a new article out called the Gray Hoodie Project, 
which basically shows how big tech uses money to influence like academic research into the conversations around tech. That's wild. And I also think this links back to this, the point that we made earlier about accountability. Like you, if there's no, if the journalism, if journalism is limited, then there's no way for outside organizations to keep these tech companies accountable, to keep democracy accountable. And I think that's obviously has huge political risk in the functioning of this country, the United States, not to mention what what kind of algorithm or like what kind of impact this could have if they're critical of these tech companies as well, if they're really able to manipulate what we see and the power of knowledge, if it's controlled by these tech companies, yeah, has really serious implications. And as you said, like with the re- with controlling what is researched in think tanks and academia, I mean, I think there's a huge, there's a huge risk in that as well. And especially as, and I think that's really heightened too, when we see this divide between DC and Silicon Valley you have, it's almost like a screaming match in terms of there's not really like a clear understanding of what the other side is afraid of or how the other side really operates. And I think that if money and sort of that political manipulation becomes entrenched, I think there's a lot of, obviously a lot of harm that can come with that too. Yeah. And Rob Reich, who's not the former US um, official, but the Stanford a political theorist, has a really great book called Just Giving, which is looking at the like impact of like philanthropy and philanthropic foundations on like democratic institutions. Just so it's such an interesting argument. And I found it, I found it interesting. I mean, the report was bringing it up in the context of monopolies, but I think, and, and actually it's quite interesting because the first kind of philanthropic foundations in the US were made by like the Rockefellers and the big monopolists. But like, just in like foundations, philanthropic foundations in general, whether or not they're founded by monopolists have, you know, you, you're basically, if you have more money, you can set, set the agenda and you can fund things that you consider important. And it was really interesting. Facebook made a couple million dollar donation to the Menlo Park police, Menlo Park general fund with the understanding that it would be used to set up and maintain a new police unit specifically around the Facebook campus. In this one instance, right, it's a general fund. So technically Menlo Park could do whatever it wants with it, but we have like emails documenting that like they knew it would be used for the police unit. So that's like an interesting it's, you know, way of using that political influence. The thing that's quite interesting, though, is that this was after a couple of years ago in which Facebook set aside, I think it was, I forget how much money it was, but basically it was a grant specifically to fund one, like a police position who would be assigned around the Facebook campus beat. And it is the only known privately funded public police position in the country. That's crazy. Um, so, right. And that's, there was a lot of argument about that, about, okay, Facebook is on the one hand, you can be like, oh, this is great. Facebook has a ton of money. It's the campus is located in an area that like maybe needs more money and they're using their money to fund a police officer. On the other hand, the community was like, hey, you're subverting the democratic process. Like, just give us taxes. And then we as a community will decide whether we feel like that that community money should go to policing. 
and and then there's a lot of interesting tension between the community and the police and so anyways there's a great article about how the police have been going after people stealing facebook bikes and this has risen to tensions in the community but like it's i thought i thought it was really interesting that the the house that this this the Facebook police incident was not in the House report, but I thought it was interesting that they brought up this this problem of big corporations and monopolists like using their money and their influence to subvert democratic processes. Yeah, so just to wrap up sort of the biggest takeaways from the House Judiciary Report, are there any arguments that maybe aren't included in the report that you think are worth mentioning? Yeah, so there's two sort of political arguments about monopolies that exist that weren't explicitly mentioned. So the first argument came from Mark Zuckerberg in his testimony, in which he basically argues that, look, if you break us up, China will, Chinese backed companies like TikTok will replace, will dominate the market in our stead, and that these companies do not have the same values as like Facebook and American company does. It's an interesting argument. I mean, I think it's very, it's clearly very self-serving for Facebook to say that. It also sort of like glosses over harms that can be caused by corporations. So Mark Zuckerberg's basically making an argument like, look, the state is scarier than a dominant state with state-backed corporations is scarier than like, us, a dominant American company, sort of glosses over the harms that consolidation of like corporate power can have, which is something that like we've obviously seen with the questions of like, how, how are we gonna, how should Facebook think about its approach to like regulating news content in the run up to the US presidential election, right? Like, on the one hand, the fact that Mark Zuckerberg could make these decisions that have like huge, enormous consequences for how our democracy goes. I mean, Ryan Mack at BuzzFeed during the election had an amazing, amazing report that found that Facebook has a violence and incitements metric that it uses to, like, to track certain hashtags and certain things, which has like real life consequences for like people showing up at the outside, like voting like the counting places so even though it's not a state it's the fact that it's not a state personally i think is a little more alarming so so that's but but it is one question right and i think i mean i think it is a good question about like how we should also think about the international dimensions to to the big tech challenges the other argument is the fragility of the fragility of economic systems with too much consolidation. So that's kind of like the too big to fail argument. So this question of what happens if Facebook disappears tomorrow? What happens if Amazon disappears tomorrow? Do they cause, does that much consolidation cause fragility in the, in a system that we can't tolerate? And sort of the third argument that I think uh, there's less stuff on, but I think is really, really important is, and it sort of relates to that too big to fail question, is what happens when the state becomes dependent on these corporations? So that one of the questions around railroads or like electricity companies or energy companies, right? Which is the state also depends on this infrastructure. And it's quite an interesting question. So like in one of the things in the report that was like very not highlighted is that AWS, which is like Amazon's cloud computing servers, which is also essentially a monopoly. It really only competes with Microsoft. 
dominates public cloud computing. So the like stat from the report, 6,500 government agencies use AWS, which is Amazon's cloud computing servers, including NASA and the CIA. So, and, 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 and AWS specifically markets itself to like public governments. And it's currently in a pitch battle with Microsoft's cloud computing for the Pentagon's couple million con dollar contract. No, I'm sorry, $10 billion contract for cloud computing. So this is question of then one, if the state relies so much on Amazon's cloud computing, does that mean that Amazon can't fail? And is that unfair? And the second question is like, what does that mean for like the, the corporations v state competition if Amazon has access to information about like basically all forms of government? And the third question is like, how do you nationalize cloud computing? especially if the Pentagon is on it, is it feasible to nationalize it? And how does that nationalization work? And what are the implications of state dependency? I think it's a conversation that the public discourse isn't really having. And I think it's really critical to have, which is what are the ramifications of the state's reliance on these serv services? I think that's an insanely valid point um, and something I think is not talked about enough. I wanted to jump in really quickly on the first point you made about Facebook's argument that it helps that its, in, its prominence is important in order to limit China or these malicious state actors <laughs> from insert, like entering the economy or like entering the market and developing apps that have more, that have greater implications for privacy infringement. And two points. The first is that there was, before TikTok, in around the 2015 time frame, there was an application called Vine, which does a very similar thing to TikTok in terms of people uploading very short clips or videos. And Facebook literally shut it down. And so I find that this argument is incredibly hypocritical because Facebook is the reason why these TikTok, which is a Chinese created application, which I think is, is different than WeChat in a lot of different regards, but we're not going to dive into that. But and, I, and it's not like TikTok necessarily is, is malicious, and I don't exactly know what their privacy regulations are, and especially now that I think there's a bigger conversation on data localization, what that will look like for, regarding Americans' privacy with the application. But regardless, it, it, it is very yeah. hypocritical for them to say that. And I think the second point, too, is for Facebook to say that, it almost seems and also raises a big question of if, big if, with the new Biden administration, we get into a more quote-unquote serious Cold War type competition with China, what role corporations like Facebook will play in that foreign policy scene? And if Facebook starts to leverage this foreign policy element in, in their company's business model, I mean, we're already seeing a lot of issues coming up in Southeast Asia, for example, in Myanmar, with the platform being used to incite genocide, or in Cambodia, with the algorithm being changed halfway through the elections of, in Cambodia that I think had an impact on the elections, or at least caused a lot of concern from the government during that time, what it looks like for a company to have that much leverage. And I think that those are questions that, while they're 
being addressed on more of a on a results-based case by case or for example what do we do now that there was a genocide in in or there's an ongoing genocide in Myanmar and Facebook's implicated what do we do now from that the bigger question is what is what is Facebook's foreign policy slash like should they even have one and like how does that get regulated state by state yeah I the U.S. I'm so glad you brought that up because again it so it depends it, it goes back to this question of like consolidation and democratization or breakup so like the Southeast Asia examples that you brought up, so I should also say like the Philippines, like Maria Reza in the Philippines was one of the first people like ringing the alarm bell like pre-2016 about what was going on with Facebook and how it led to the rise of this dictator in the Philippines, Duarte, and Facebook ignored her. And so a lot of, a lot of the commentators, you know, a lot of the commentators like, you know, this, people knew about this beforehand, but just when it became a problem in the U.S., uh, that's when people started yeah. paying attention. But, it, but it's this really interesting point. So like in many countries, Facebook is the internet, right? And that's a different type of monopoly power than the type of monopoly power Facebook has in the States where it's just kind of like the dominant, like social, social networking, however, social media, however you want to define that, where you log on to Facebook and it, I mean, you log on to the internet, it's just Facebook. And yeah. there's a very interesting example in, in India with free basics where Facebook tried to do the same thing, which is like, we'll give you the internet as long as we get to be the dominant site on the internet. And in India, the state said, no way. And so there's, you know, the mid back and forth that, about that. But like in a place like, like Cambodia, for instance, so, so like the example you brought up where like during the election, there was an election in Cambodia and most non-state news organizations are on Facebook. That's how they like distribute their content. And in the middle of the election, this wasn't even an algorithm change. Like it was just a design change. Facebook was like, hey, what would be the impact if we separated out like people's personal friends updates, which like with like page updates. So that would be news organizations and have two separate feeds. And so they're like, okay, let's try it out in some closed market. So they picked a couple of countries off the top of their heads, you know, I think Sweden was another one, but Cambodia happened to be in the middle of election. I don't even know if they knew that. And it like the, the traffic to non-state back news organizations went down dramatically. And that's not even like, before we even get to the question of algorithms, that's just a design, you know, that's just like some UX engineer in Palo Alto who's like, what, you know, that's, so that's incredible power. And that comes from that, that power in a sense comes from being a monopoly. So again, when we get to the questions of remedies, is the remedy that we, Facebook continues to be consolidated and, but just like Cambodians or, you know, it's users in different, you know, so we just don't, we shouldn't just think about like an American context, but, you know, people, you know, is it that, you know, Facebook in Cambodia must have input from Cambodian citizens or the Cambodian state, sort of, again, questionable in, in terms of, of these designs. Like, how do you make that participatory? I don't really know what that looks like, but is it just that you just need more participation? Or like a Facebook social contract? I don't know. Or is the solution like break up Facebook and have a bunch of different like type of content aggregation platforms and that like the idea being that like consumers can choose but but the point is facebook has power right it has political power and it operates that power even though it rejects you know 
whether or not it is benevolent in operating that power, it has political power. Absolutely. And I think it's relationship being a U.S. company has political implications for this country. And I think that's another reason why it's important that the U.S. government is trying to investigate what are the the political ramifications of an organization of a company like like Facebook, because it does reflect on what sort of U.S. influence there is based on what U.S. laws are. And I think the fact that the U.S.'s relationship and regulation of these companies will have serious implications for other countries is a sort of subtle foreign policy that I feel like is not really being explored a lot, but is going to have, as you mentioned, serious implications for for the impact of other democracies, for the the human rights protections of of minority communities, for example, in, in the Rohingya in Myanmar. And I think that it's something that's really, it's it's known but under-investigated. And I think the, your point about the Philippines is an example that that is just not mentioned, is very much understudied, despite the fact that people were raising the alarm bells in the run-up to Duterte's election. So yeah, really interesting stuff. But let's now, I guess, transition into what the DOJ investigation of Google, which was announced at the end of October, will look like. So before we dive in too deeply, do you want to just give an overview on what the main points or the main arguments brought um, by the DOJ to support why they're launching this investigation were? Luckily, it was only 64 pages, not 444 page suit. The DOJ suit was certainly much more limited than the House Judiciary Report, which was like a very far-reaching investigation into anti the anti-monopoly practices of the, the big four companies. This is quite a limited suit into one very kind of almost narrow aspect of only Google's monopoly, but it is significant in that it's it's happening at all. It's sort of like the first major antitrust suit since Microsoft in the early 2000s. And very briefly, the like the 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 gist of the DOJ suit against Google, the first aspect of it is that they basically argue that Google has a monopoly in search. And Google is using anti-competitive practices to protect that monopoly. So they say that, like, basically that Google makes exclusionary agreements with a variety of different companies to be the default search engine. So for instance, they have agreements with Apple to make sure that Google is the default search on Safari or on your phone. And those types of exclusionary agreements are not illegal, but they are illegal if you're a monopoly. The second aspect of the suit that I think is is interesting has to do with Google's like phone operating system. So that's Android, the Android operating system. Google does release the Android operating system, but essentially as the suit alleges, they have a series of like carrots and sticks to make sure that no one changes the operating system in a way that would like not harm Google. So one of those is don't like make Google the default search um, engine, but a variety of different things like you need to have like Gmail on the home page or you know you need to or Google Maps on the front page there's a, a ton of specifications for what you can and cannot do to change the phone if you do change it like they they don't stop you but they don't they don't allow you um to they like cut you off from the revenue sharing agreements which can be quite significant and they do not allow you access to the Google Play store which is very significant because that is just like where all of the apps 
live. So if you buy an Android phone and you can't access the Google Play Store, I mean, it's kind of useless to you. There's like a lot of like nitty gritty details that we could go into and in terms of like the suit. But I do think that my takeaway from reading it was just like, it is so, so narrow. And to me, it really demonstrates sort of like some of the drawbacks of trying to take on like technology corporations by using anti-monopoly arguments. Not that they're like, as we was discussing, not that there aren't like good, like good and valid and like helpful ways of thinking about the power of big tech in terms of monopolies. But if, if it results in like DOJ suits that are just like very, very narrow in an attempt to like really be able to prove that there's a monopoly and define consumer harm to win. I think we're sort of like missing the ball game. The other thing it, it's, that strikes me is like the, the, the suit specifically says that Google is the gateway to the internet. And so it defines that in terms of like competition and that it's saying, okay, Google is the gateway to the internet. So like when you search something, Google uses its algorithm to prioritize like Google owned content, like Google maps or something. But like that's also a like profoundly political power. And that's sort of something like that you see reflected in, in the, the discussions around like how, if, if, if Twitter and Facebook are public squares, how should we regulate them? So I wanted to know your opinion on how the Section 230 hearings really fit into this. So that was when Twitter and Facebook, the question of whether Twitter and Facebook have immunity from civil suits because they're not a publisher. And this question of what it means for Facebook and Twitter to be regulators of the public square. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting question because and so we've seen like an anti-monopoly approach to like these big tech companies, which I think have like pros and cons to how we think about it. But the the other question, the, the, the other approach to taking on the power of big tech, quote unquote, has been Section 230, which basically like these companies rely on this interpretation of 230 by saying they're platforms, they're not publishers, and therefore like they can't be sued for whatever content is on. And so right before the election, there was a the hearing about it where they called Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg to testify. There's an amazing sort of clip of Ted Cruz just like yelling at Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter. And Jack Dorsey's this very like hippie, like calm. He has this goatee beard and he was like, projecting cop this is like very san francisco chill vibe it was so bizarre to see ted cruz just like screaming at him and then jack dorsey was just like you can tweet like it was so just like epitomized the divide between dc and, and silicon valley but this is interesting so this is this is the other so in a in a strictly like in their roles as quote unquote public squares, the argument that like Mark Zuckerberg loves to make is, hey, we don't wanna be arbiters of free speech, right? Like you, we don't wanna get involved with what you're saying. Like we're just a company, you know, we wanna be fair, blah, 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 blah. And I think he's, they are absolutely delighted these, these tech companies are delighted when the conversation is, can we take this 
content down or keep it up because it, it allows them to use this argument about, oh, free speech, which by the way, does not apply to companies, only applies to governments. So again, we see we have this like implicit like idea that like these are governments and not private corporations. So one of the things I thought when Ted Cruz was screaming at Jack Dorsey was like one of the things the monopoly, the House Judiciary Anti-Monopoly Report came up, came out with was like the Facebook family of apps. It's 80% of people's online time are taken up by the Facebook family of apps. And like only 20% of the population like even have a Twitter account and like even fewer of them are actually active users, which as someone who's an active user of Twitter, it was horrifying to learn because I'm like, am I just talking to myself in a giant, just like the abyss? And the answer is yes. So why doesn't Jack Dorsey just say, hey, Ted Cruz, like you, I'm not stopping you from publishing anything on the internet. I'm just like Twitter is just a distributor in the same way that like if a book publishing company refuses to publish something, they're not preventing you from saying it. They're just like not printing it. So it's this interesting. So again, it's this interesting question of we, we think of these platforms as the internet. And we think of them as the public square. And like part of that relates to their quote unquote monopoly power, which is, you know, if, if you can't say something on Facebook or if Facebook's like distribution algorithms downrank your posts, it has, it, you know, it has real world ramifications. And I think, so two kind of interesting things come out from that. One is, that the New York Times did a very interesting article about people who were kicked off of Facebook. So these are people who probably got swept up in an anti-bot or, you know, they really don't know why they're kicked off Facebook because you don't have a right to a Facebook account. And there's no recourse or remedy. So it's actually really kind of like tragic article about these people who like would call the Facebook offices. Facebook doesn't have like representatives to deal with this. They actually showed up, I think at the Seattle Facebook office and was just like, I need to talk about something about getting an account, my account back. And Facebook's actually quite good at picking up people who are trying to create multiple user accounts. So they, every time they created another account, they were kicked off and like the implications that this had. So like for one, like one individual, his brother had died and every single photo of his brother had been saved on his Facebook account. So he was like, I just want to download my photos, right? That was, you know, like really tragic. Another woman was like, I have a, like, I sell stuff on like the Facebook marketplace, can't access that anymore. I've lost like touch with customers. Another woman was like running for, this wasn't in the New York Times article, but another article who was like running for local council or something. And four or five days before the election, her Facebook account was just suspended. She had no idea why. And so that like dramatically impacted her ability to like reach constituents. So there are real world, Im like Facebook has a lot of power. There's real world impacts on, on being denied a Facebook account. Now, you know, we're talking about people who want to delete their Facebook account. But if you don't have access to a Facebook account, that, that impacts your life. So again, it's this question of the consolidation of power. I want to jump in very quickly and ask, though, that the, the reason that Facebook does, and Twitter do these purges is because of all these bots and these fake accounts, and they're trying to limit those in order to 
I don't want to say cleanse the public domain, but to ensure that we don't have this mass spreading of, of fake news or different things like that. And so how do you think, I guess, is it unfair to then say that your criticism of these accounts is criticizing that the system is not perfect? Or do you think that there's more of a fundamental flaw with which they are actively targeting certain people over others that makes it so that you have these really sad cases? The question then becomes, is this Facebook and Twitter actively targeting specific people? Or is this just the fact that their system's not perfect and sometimes they make mistakes and these are just limited examples or sort of the outlier cases? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, it comes down to this question between whether you have power and whether you exercise that power benevolently. So like Facebook continuously makes the argument, they're like, we're going to do better. So for example, with these cases, they're like, you know, one argument could be like, look, Facebook hasn't done a good job in terms of being transparent about like why these people have been kicked off. And, and that maybe a solution is that like Facebook needs to have an update to its terms of service and, or like to have customer, to even have a customer service department that these individuals could access. But the big question, but the big problem I think there is like one, you do not have a right to a Facebook account. Facebook is a private company, so it can arbitrarily deny anybody it wants. Um, and doesn't have to, in, in these instances, it didn't release the reason why. They're just like assuming. So like Christopher Wiley, who is the whistleblower for Cambridge Analytica, was kicked off of Facebook because, you know, he was implicated in, in the stuff, but certainly against terms of service use of, of the Facebook data, right? But, but also because he was a whistleblower, right? Because he was saying Facebook does bad stuff. So like Facebook can kick you off for any reason it wants. That's a, like an arbitrary power it has. So the other, the, then, then the question becomes, is it a problem that Facebook has this power regardless of whether it's operating, whether it's exercising that power well or not, right? So is it like, if I do something that Facebook doesn't like this podcast, for instance, is it a problem that like I could be denied access to everybody I want to talk to on Messenger or access to like my grandmother's photos or, or for people who really rely on Facebook? It, it, there's, a, there's a variety of ways to think about that power. And I think that's another good way to think about the powers of these, these tech companies, which is like, what happens, one, if you don't have access to them and what happens if they don't exist? So like, Facebook is an interesting case where I think if Facebook could disappear tomorrow, like the entire company, the entire site, and it would certainly have a lot of short-term ramifications. But I think in the long term, we could definitely adapt different products and stuff to Facebook, to, to like the role Facebook has historically had. So certainly like market, like people who to depend on Facebook marketplace would be upset. People who depend on Facebook advertisements would be disrupted, particularly I think Facebook Messenger and, and WhatsApp certainly would be a huge disruption, but people would adopt different things. I mean, I think you would have a panic when you realize you don't know any of your friend's phone numbers, but you know, people would come around, up with workarounds eventually. But a bigger question, right, is as we talked about, like with the certain other countries where Facebook is the internet, like that would be a huge problem, but ultimately it might be good because they would have to adopt different like forms of internet service providers. The other question, right, then with Facebook is like that data that you hold on Facebook and you probably haven't backed up. So if like Google disappeared tomorrow, oh my God, right? I think about how much information I have stored on Google, not just my email, like Google documents, Documents, yeah, maps. I mean, that's just the things like you think of as Google doing. I mean, Google does so much more stuff. Like 
the, the internet index. I mean, so much stuff. Same if Apple disappeared tomorrow. I mean, the phones, like hardware is obviously a huge problem. And if Amazon disappeared tomorrow, I think the world would collapse. I mean, first of all, the Amazon fulfillment distribution centers, I mean, they literally, like just physical mail, like not just the, the stores we rely on, but Amazon AWS servers. I mean, there was one woman who did this really great article, which is I tried to cut the big four out of my life and I couldn't. A friend had written a code so that her phone couldn't connect to any sites that used AWS, like Amazon's servers. And it was like every single site, Netflix, like things you don't even think of as like using AWS, use AWS. And, and it's interesting, actually, one of the things that Amazon did was it would allow these like startup companies to rent server space. So it really like cut costs for a lot of like online businesses to not to in terms of like tending, setting up their sites. But that then means that like <laughs> Amazon can, like is, is controls a lot. So these, these companies are incredibly, incredibly powerful. They don't seem like they're going anywhere soon, but the question of if they did collapse, I mean, it would, it would cause calamity. And that's, that's a question of power, right? Which I think is what this all kind of comes back to, which is these companies have immense, immense power. And so I think that's kind of the theme of this, this talk, which is like, do you accept that they have power and try to regulate it or democratize it or make that power fair? Or do you break up that power so that the consolidation of power doesn't exist? Yeah. I have no answers to those questions, but I wanted to maybe see if this was related. So a few months ago, I think September, Trump threatened to block WeChat and TikTok from operating in the U.S. And while I don't think in the U.S. WeChat does not have the same type of monopoly power as it does in China, but there's still tons of users in the U.S. that rely on WeChat to communicate, especially amongst the Chinese and Chinese-American populations here. And so do you see a lot of, and sort of when people were thinking through what the implications of that kind of ban would look like in the U.S., do you see similarities to prospectively what that could look like if some of the big four were demonopolized de or broken up? Yeah, I mean, that was such an interesting because I think we sort of think about that theoretically, like the power of the state versus the power of the corporation. But ultimately, the idea of the Pentagon storming Amazon headquarters is like laughable. That's, it sounds absurd, right? But then, yeah, the Trump administration's like threat to shut down these apps was such an interesting example of the state being like, we still own you. So I thought it was a very interesting reminder. If the state wanted to, it could turn to Mark Zuckerberg and be like, shut it down. And, but whether that continues to be true, I think is, is an interesting question. So yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I really think it points to, so, so like WeChat, as you mentioned, I think if, if TikTok got shut down, again, I think it would have an impact on individuals' economics. So there was, TikTok actually got shut down in India. So it was really interesting. I think it was a Wall Street Journal feature on this one <laughs> poor Indian guy who was like, I have made a lot of money off of TikTok because he was a viral star. And then when it got shut down, he basically lost his livelihood. So in that sense, it has an impact. But WeChat is much more, as you said, integrated into our lives or into, into certain people's lives in terms of especially Chinese citizens or, or people who have relations back in China who are sending money back to them. And they do that through WeChat. And so that would have been horribly disruptive. 
if if that had happened. And I think you see like an acknowledgement of tech these tech corporations trying really hard to build themselves into the fabric of our lives. So I think that was like one of the big things with Facebook and Libra, where Facebook was like, we're going to create a cryptocurrency because if you, right, it's this like to attempt to be too big to fail, right? If you have something like where people are depending on currency, like that's hugely disruptive, then you, you can't go away. Whereas, you know, and it's so, I think we're sort of on the edge of that starting to happen. I mean, I definitely like Twitter could disappear tomorrow. And I think a lot of journalists would have like heart attacks, but would the world stop functioning? No, probably not. But like I said, like if Amazon disappeared tomorrow, like I think like we would have a global meltdown. So, and like even, or even if Google Maps disappeared tomorrow, like you think about all our Apple Maps, you know, like what would happen to shipping, right? So there are these things built into the fabric of our lives and again, right, the question is, is, is that okay? Do we want them to be that powerful and just regulate them and make sure they're accountable to us? Or do we want to break them up and force them to compete? So have competitions in maps or Gmail or email or whatever, right? But yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's why we have the big four and Twitter's not included in that is because when you think about it, any one of those big four, if they were to shut down tomorrow, would dramatically impact the lives of everyday people in ways that I think are even unimaginable, as you said. And I think some more than others, I think, as you said, Amazon way more on a day-to-day basis than Facebook. Like I think we could all in this country, we could live without Facebook, but then you think about Myanmar, like what would happen if Facebook died? Yeah. You would have no internet, like you would have no communication. And I think it's an ever more pressing country in the era of coronavirus, when everything is being transferred online so that you can still function, the economy can still function even though it's not face-to-face. And as that gets not only, not as the importance of these companies increases, I think we're going to have an even more serious and precarious discussion. In, in the next year about, about what this could look like, especially as we transition out of this COVID era. And a lot of the, these legacies continue to live on, on our dependence on Amazon or our dependence on these companies for communication, for food, for our livelihoods. Thanks so much for listening to our first episode. All of the articles that Kira and I mentioned will be linked in the show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. You can also tweet at me or Kira using the links below or comment on this episode if you have thoughts, recommended readings, or ideas for future episodes. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, be sure to subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. Wait, sorry. Can we interrupt this very briefly? AP called Pennsylvania. <gasps> really? Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! It's New York Times official. Like ah! two seventy three. Oh my god! I could not wake up another day and have it still be the election.